Welcome to the Tea and Gardens podcast, where we drink tea and explore the gardens of Victoria, BC. This is the companion piece to the video series, which was filmed on the Quankin Territory in spring 2022, the year of the garden. Have you got a tea, Lauren? I do. I have a very large mug of English breakfast tea. As do I, with some milk and honey. It's delicious. Yum. So... Seeing as you're English, perhaps you can explain to me why is there a tea called English breakfast? Did you have this for breakfast? Personally? No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) I am an outlier in English society because my family didn't drink tea. I never drank it growing up. Yeah, I didn't really like it. My family drank coffee and actively disliked tea. And... I only started drinking tea when I was in like my late teens, early 20s, because I just grew tired of telling people that I didn't really like tea and getting like just such aghast, outraged reactions because (laughs) people think you're weird. English people think you're weird if you don't like tea. So I just started saying, yeah, sure, I'll have a cup of tea and just drinking it. I never hated it. It just wasn't really my drink. But that just wasn't going to fly, and I felt way too awkward, (laughs) so I would just drink it anyway. But English breakfast tea is certainly a very common drink in England, and certainly most of my peers drank it growing up. And it is a blend of two or three black teas. And there's a few different origin stories knocking around for where it came from, but the most common one is that it was invented in the late 19th century by a Scottish tea merchant named Robert Drysdale. But he, at the time, was based in America. He was in New York City. Hmm. And he wanted to create a more affordable option. So to do that, he blended several inexpensive black teas and created what became called English breakfast tea. I'm assuming it was called English, even though he was Scottish and they were in America, because it was easier to sell to Americans that way. Mm, That makes sense. Yeah, like a marketing thing. And there's also a story that Queen Victoria tried to blend while she was at Balmoral, which is the royal family's castle in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And she really liked it, and she brought it back to England with her, and that became known as English breakfast tea. So in both origin stories that I found while researching this, it's actually Scottish. Mm. (laughs) It's just ended up with the tag English. Well, I can counter that. I think it's actually Portuguese. Mm. Have you heard about Catherine of Braganza? I have not. Oh, well strap in. All right, let's go. (laughs) I find this story fascinating. My really good friend, Hui Grandao, who's from Porto, Portugal, was very proud of his culture and shared many stories with me. And one that really surprised me was this queen who brought tea to the UK. So Catherine of Braganza was born in 1638. And in 1662, she married King Charles II of England. Now, during this time, of course, there was tea being consumed around the country. I mean, imagine all the witches who were accused of making potions. Yeah. But really what tea was being used for was medicine. Mm -hmm. And it was Catherine of Braganza who, when she moved to marry King Charles, she brought along loose leaf tea with her. And it was probably part of her dowry, in fact. And on her crates... 
that would have had her spices and teas. It would have said transporte de hervas aromáticas, which, when abbreviated, is T-E-A. Oh! So, cool, right? Now, whether or not that's the actual origin of the name is very debatable. It's kind of more of a legend. Sure. But I thought that was kind of cool to share. Yeah, I like it. And so, yeah, when she brought her loose leaf tea with her, she was consuming it in court every day. It was her routine. And, of course, the ladies of the court followed suit. Mm -hmm. And that is how tea became popular in the courts of England. Wow, I love that. Yeah, she was a trendsetter. Absolutely. She sounded very interesting. Yeah, and then I guess she would have been drinking the expensive kind that then the tea merchants and whoever made this tea for Queen Victoria blended in order to make it more affordable. Exactly. She would have been having the best of the best. Oh, absolutely. Only the best for the royals. Speaking of the queen, in this episode, we were invited for high tea at the Fairmont Empress Hotel, which was named after Queen Victoria. It's located in the heart of the city of Victoria, facing the picturesque Inner Harbour. Canada's Castle on the Coast is a national historic site that first opened in 1908. Just north of the main entrance is the hotel's Centennial Garden, where we met Morgan Wilson, the head chef. This garden includes an apiary, so we wanted to know more about these special guests and the important role they play at the hotel. This is where we keep our bees, and right now it's still very early spring, so they're kind of still slumbering, slowly waking up, and they will, as the weather gets better and a little bit warmer, they'll start venturing out and they'll, they'll be foraging on our grounds uh, very soon, as soon as the weather gets up, probably around above 10 degrees on a consistent basis, you see them out. Cool. And you use that honey in the tea that you serve here? We do. So the, the honey is used in a number of different applications. Of course, afternoon tea is a big feature for the hotel. So we use, we use it in that, in different desserts that we're serving in afternoon tea. We make a uh, vinaigrette with it in the uh, restaurant in queue at the Empress, champagne honey vinaigrette, which is our, our house dressing. And uh, wherever else, really, that we can use it, we, we love using it. Champagne honey vinaigrette sounds so good. Yeah. <laughs> what else do you grow here that you use? Well, we have various herbs. And then on the rooftop garden, we'll grow small crops of different vegetables. So we'll have radishes, we'll have onions and garlic. My favorite is strawberries, so we get a small batch of strawberries. And those are really just sort of special when, they, when they're perfectly in season, perfectly ripe. We'll pick them and use them as a special for, you know, maybe one or two nights in the restaurant. Yeah, because it's a short season, right? Just in June, is that? Well, it's a short season, but also we don't have a lot of space. We don't have a lot of strawberries planted. So it's just a special treat when it does come. I think that's really important that like as a wider society, I think we've gotten too used to being able to eat whatever food we want at any time, even if it's not in season. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think people have gotten away from their backyard garden patch. So as we've, we've started that here a little bit, we have our own little garden patch and we, we plant what we can and harvest what we can and uh, really try to let nothing go to waste. Do you have a philosophy here? I, I think our philosophy on food is really based on trying to be as local as we can, working within the seasons, uh, letting the seasons sort of dictate what our menus are. So we're not, you know, bringing products that are 
out of season from far away and uh, really trying to celebrate the food as it is. We don't overcomplicate it. We really just try to bring out the best in the food. Is there any particular connection between the overall culture of the Empress? So let's say the style of architecture and the style of cuisine that you have here, are they connected in any way? Well, I think the afternoon tea is very classic, which obviously relates to our architecture. Uh, I think our food in general is probably more modern. We certainly have modern touches throughout the hotel since our, our recent renovation. So I think our food is much more in the restaurants. It's probably more on the modern side. Afternoon tea, it's definitely a classic afternoon tea, what you'd expect to see in a grand old town like this. Would you say the afternoon tea is what the Empress is most known for? I think it is certainly what we're probably most known for, what we're connected to. We're definitely making a name for ourselves in other areas, specifically Q Bar and Q Restaurant. I've been here nine years now. Wow. Yeah, it's really exciting to be part of a building like this on the grounds that it has part of a wonderful city. So it's for me, it's a dream job. How do you drink your tea? I take it black with just a little lemon. So that's a very traditional way of drinking. I yeah. feel like you don't see that so much anymore. I think milk yeah. is more common. That's, that's the way grandma taught me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard that. Speaking of tea, we had a reservation, so we headed inside and were greeted at the entrance by Winston, the hotel's charming resident golden lab. And just as a side note, Winston failed seeing iDog school for being too friendly, so that's how he ended up at the hotel as a greeter. What a sweetheart. He was so cute. So after giving Winston some love, we were led upstairs to the lobby lounge where they have been serving afternoon tea for more than 113 years. So afternoon tea has an extensive history to it, as you might expect. The Empress do a really good job of summarizing this history on their website. So I'm just going to read directly from it. Mm -hmm. The history of afternoon tea. The storied tradition of afternoon tea began in 1840 in England when the 7th Duchess of Bedford found herself peckish around 4pm. Who doesn't? Who doesn't indeed? <laughs> Dinner was served fashionably late at 8pm, so she began to order tea with bread, butter and cake to her room. Delightful. Yeah. Soon enough, she began to invite her friends to enjoy it with her. By the 1880s, Afternoon tea had become a high-fashion event served in the drawing room with silver teapots, fine linens, elegant teacups, and world-renowned teas. As afternoon tea hosted in homes became tea parties, soon enough tea rooms and tea gardens quickly spread throughout England. So do you find that there are a lot of tea rooms around, let's say, London? They definitely exist to me they've always been like something that you would go to only on a very special occasion like maybe for a bachelorette which we call a hindu right. you might go and have afternoon tea hmm. you might take your mother for her birthday which is the one time i ever went while i was living in england it was for my mom's birthday Cute. and we didn't drink tea we had champagne oh well done <laughs> i know much nicer yeah <laughs> To my personal taste. So definitely those tea rooms are around. They kind of strike me as more of a tourist thing, which is not to say that no English people indulge. It's just not a common affair, I wouldn't say. Okay, so it's basically the same here. High tea is for special events. 
and the lobby lounge at the Empress Hotel certainly meets the occasion. The room is truly spectacular. It has a high ceiling, white pillars, and is adorned with potted palms. The large windows that overlook the harbour filled the room with light, and a pianist was serenading guests as we took our seat by the fireplace. A server named Wayne handed us the two incredible tea menus. Each one has 12 compartments covered by plexiglass that contain a sample of dried tea leaves and flowers. It's a really beautiful way to demonstrate the wide variety of teas they offer. The selection includes fun and delicious sounding options like Madame Butterfly or Rose Kongu Emperor, a favorite of Princess Diana. It was a tough choice, but we settled on Blue Suede Shoes and Sencha Harvest Spice, which featured beautiful blue and pink flowers, respectively. They arrived with a perfect tea timer, three hourglasses that time three, four, and five minutes for a light, medium, or strong steep. It all felt quite formal, I have to say. I almost felt like I should be sticking out my pinky finger as I took a first sip of tea. <laughs> what is the story behind that, by the way? Well, it's a bit of a weird one because like, I guess nobody can say exactly where that habit came from in the first place. There are lots of different theories. So one is when tea was first brought to Europe from China in the 17th century, cups at that time didn't have handles. Hmm. So people wanted to keep fewer fingers on the cup because the cup was very hot and because only the rich people could afford to drink expensive imported tea. That gesture became an affectation that connoted class and wealth and privilege. Ah. There are other theories that it's to do with spices that you the tradition would be to keep your pinky finger in the air so that it didn't get greasy or dirty at all so that you could use it to dip into spices or salt or other expensive things you want to keep that clean for that hmm. there is another theory that it was code that women in court would use to signal to gentlemen that they were open to a dalliance Ooh, sassy very sassy. There's another theory that it's because in 17th century France, the court of Louis XIV was so rife with syphilis oh, no. that people's <laughs> fingers would be sticking out because syphilis affects your joint movement, so you actually <laughs> wouldn't be able to use them. <laughs> oh, that's awful. So all these different options, but whichever one is true, it's actually not good etiquette to raise your pinky finger. It's actually considered quite rude. And proper etiquette is that you should curl your pinky finger under the cup and not have it sticking up in the air. Noted. Yeah. I found a quote actually while I was researching this from a woman named Jill Haney, who is a corporate image consultant, who says, the only reason to put your pinky in the air is if you want to draw attention to yourself as an affected wannabe. Ouch. I know. <laughs> okay. I will never have that urge ever again. No, I know. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, something quite snobbish about it. Well, I think that's it though, right? That's mm -hmm. that's the sentiment that yes. sticking your pinky out. It, I mean, it's an exaggerated gesture. Yes. So Don't do it. Don't do it, everyone. <laughs> okay, so what happened next? Our tea tower arrived. Yes. 
Another server named Brandy arrived with our beautiful afternoon tea tower and she very kindly walked us through the menu. So on the bottom we have our raisin scones with clotted cream and strawberry lavender jam. We have our roast beef, cucumber dill cream cheese dark rye in the middle, coronation chicken salad, our ham quiche and local smoked sockeye salmon with chive cream cheese. We have pastry on top, we have our cranberry shortbread, red velvet cake in the middle, chocolate torch, caramel banana cake, and our strawberry rose macaron. Enjoy! Thank you so You're much. welcome. Cheers. Cheers. What tea are you We're drinking a very beautiful tea called Blue Suede Shoes. Could you tell us a bit about it? Well, it's, that's definitely one of my favorites. The, the signature part of that is really that it uses the blue uh, pea flower, which where it gets its name from, of course, it's also an, an homage, a nod to the king, uh, Elvis, of course, as well. Um, and the blue pea flower actually is used in the making of the Empress Gin as well. So it's um, it's got a special place for us here at the Empress. So the, the honey that is served with tea will come from our own hives for the most part. Are there particular flowers that they're collecting pollen from? They go to all the different flowers and you can, it's really quite interesting because you can taste when different things are in season, especially with our herbs on the rooftop garden, when for instance, the thyme starts to flower, that flavor really comes through into the honey. So at this point in the season, because we haven't had any, any honey production for a while, we're not actually serving the, the honey from the gardens, but um, later in the year we will be. So with, uh, we'll start with our famous scones. So our scones, they're uh, the same recipe we've been using here at the hotel for decades. Um, they're a golden raisin that we put in the scone and we serve it with house-made clotted cream. So we're making the clotted cream ourselves. And then we have a strawberry lavender jam that we serve with that. Uh, we always have five different selections on both the sandwich tier and on the pastry tier. Uh, the first one you can see there is the local smoked salmon. So that's a local sockeye. It's wild, caught here and smoked uh, locally in Victoria. Coronation chicken, very classic uh, English afternoon tea flavors. Uh, basically a curry chicken sandwich. Within the cucumber sandwich, we have the mascarpone cream that's been whipped with a little bit of the Empress honey and a roast beef sandwich. And that was actually one of Princess Diana's favorite sandwiches to enjoy at afternoon tea. So we're, uh, we're serving that currently as well. We noticed that there is a Princess Diana tea as well. Oh, it's her favorite tea. Right. And that was the rose, I believe. Right. The rose petal tea. So we did, we actually had the um, chef, uh, a gentleman named Darren McGrady. So he was the chef at Buckingham Palace. So he came and did um, a special chef's appearance here and we served um, a complete tea that was the sort of items that would be served at Buckingham Palace on a regular basis. So that was one of the teas that we brought in um, at that time because it was her favorite and uh, we have a few holdovers that are, are uh, everyone's favorite, like the roast beef sandwich. So for me, every time I have a cup of tea, and certainly the tradition of having afternoon tea, takes me right back to visiting my grandmother when I was a child. She's Scottish, um, so she would love to serve us tea 
always we would have a little bit of Scottish shortbread as well as a special treat. So for me, this connection to family and history and England is, is really all part of enjoying tea. Um, and it's really, for me, it's really something very special. Would you mind talking a bit about why you think this city in particular has such a strong tea culture? I think it is, it's that connection to the old world and Victoria, of course, being named after former queen and she was the one that really um, popularized afternoon tea um, so I think that people crave experience and so there's this little bit of an experience there's a little bit of a story that goes with it and so everybody can feel a part of something so I think for anybody that's visiting Victoria that and, and the gardens as well um, I think that is is a big part a big reason why people come is for that experience. Anything else? I'm curious if you're a gardener yourself. Do you like to garden? You know, I've always, I love the idea of gardening. I, I like the sort of the romantic side of growing your own food and, and all of that. I'm not patient enough. I, I want it to happen now. Um, so I love working with uh, different uh, farmers and gardeners and, and um, you know, helping to maybe suggest different products that they could grow. And I'm always excited when the truck pulls up and we get to sample the, the products. But for myself, I don't have the patience to plant a seed and wait six weeks for it to come up. Yeah. You're a busy man. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also wanted to ask you about this china, this Empress China. Could you tell me? This china is very special. So this is china that was based on a design from the Queen of England herself. And so when she came to visit, um, she had tea in this room. Uh, this china is, it was commissioned for that visit. And so we've kept the china and the china is made just for Fairmont Hotels. And on a personal note, may I ask how you feel working in this beautiful setting, this establishment? For me, I have to pinch myself every day coming to work driving in and you see the building and really it's something special to be a part of it and to know that my name will be part of the history um, of the hotel that's been enduring for so long and I'm sure will continue to be here for another hundred years. Thank you so much to Chef Morgan for taking time from his busy schedule to speak with us and share a delightful conversation over tea. We are very grateful to have been invited to this quintessential Victorian experience. This was the last episode of the series, so Chantal, what would you say that we've learned from this experience? Well, from the tea side of this series, I would say that I've learned to appreciate teas more. I, as I've said before, I'm a coffee drinker, but throughout this series, I've been thoughtfully or purposely drinking more tea. And I quite enjoy it. I don't feel as buzzed. <laughs> and uh, although I love that coffee buzz, but no, there are different teas for different moments and I'm learning to appreciate that. Definitely more of a gentle kick than a hitting you over the head with a caffeine hit. Yeah, the jolt in the morning I still enjoy. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but afternoon tea is becoming a tradition. Yeah. How about you? Do you have a new relationship with tea? I guess I have a new relationship with tea. Certainly growing up as an English person, when if you say tea, what I picture is a mug of black tea, 
but there is a lot more to tea than that and a huge variety of different experiences. And that's definitely something that I really appreciate. And I enjoyed talking to so many people who offered different perspectives on what they get from tea, which had a lot of things in common, but weren't the same experiences. Yeah, I think I was really inspired by Sarah Jim and Judith Lynn Arney, who recommended that you grow your own tea in pots at home in your garden. And I may try that. My parents actually do that. They grow their own mint tea. So Oh, they do? There you go. Yeah, they do. It's pretty cute, actually. That's awesome. Yeah. And how about the gardening side? What have you learned? I have learned that a lot of the gardens in Victoria, which, as we know, is famous for its gardens, are the way they are because they are managed by volunteers. Yes. Like, there are so many hours of community work that go into these spaces And I didn't really know that before. I think I probably had assumed that most of those gardens had full-time paid staff members, and some of them do, Mm -hmm. but a lot of them really, really rely on community support, and that's very beautiful and fascinating, really. Yeah, I agree. That was a huge takeaway. The volunteerism, the community involvement... And also the mental health aspect of getting people together to socialize outside in the fresh air. It's really impressive that the city has so many opportunities for that. Definitely. And so many people who are willing to give their time. Yes. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And another thing that I really noticed was the native plant restoration. I think there's a movement of being more conscious about how we garden and how important it is to have these protected spaces. So it was inspiring to to hear about all the great work that's happening for the betterment of everyone, really. Absolutely. And all the sustainable initiatives like at Abkhazi Garden, with them putting microclover into the lawns because it uses less water... A lot of people who really care a lot are doing the very best that they can to secure a better future for the entire city. And let's not forget about the community garden at Point Ellis House that donates fruit and vegetables and herbs to the women's shelter. So there's a lot of great things happening in this city. and, And I think we're really fortunate to have met all these great people working on these projects. Definitely. Yeah. I do feel very blessed to have been allowed behind closed doors in all these spaces. Yeah. It was a real privilege. Yeah. So I guess we should wrap this up. We should mention that because this final episode features a shorter interview and their rooftop garden isn't open to the public, so this doesn't have a video counterpart. However, if you would like to see our high tea at the Empress, which was absolutely exquisite, please do check out our social media account at Tea and Gardens YYJ. Thank you so much for listening to the Tea and Gardens podcast. Cheers and happy gardening. Done.